to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 39, as we follow along with today's lesson. And so the Pharisee, when he saw this woman who had a reputation and he no doubt knew her, well, he did because uh, he, he said, you know, she's a sinful woman. He knew her. And so when he saw this woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping them with her hair and then smothering them with kisses, he thought to himself, Yeah, he can't be a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. He'd know what a sinner she is. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. Jesus then gave him a little parable of a creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other owed him 50 pence translated into today would be something like $50,000 and $5,000 and neither one was able to pay their debt so he forgave both of them now which one Jesus said loved him the most And Simon said, well, I guess the one that he forgave the most. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And then Jesus went on to compare the hospitality that he had given to Jesus with the woman's graciousness towards him. He was sort of a very crude Reception of Jesus. You see, when you were invited to dinner in that Eastern culture, as you arrived at the house, the first thing is that there would be a servant at the door with a basin of water to wash your feet. You would leave your sandals at the door and they would wash your feet and you would enter in. The host would then kiss you in greeting. And then he would take a bit of perfume, the attar of rose, uh, oil, and put it on your forehead to just give a fragrance in the room, bespeaking the, the fragrance of the conversation and all and the, the time that was shared together that it might be a beautiful, fragrant experience. He said, Simon, you didn't do any of these courtesies for me. 
You had no water to pour on my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss, nor did you anoint my head. You failed in the common courtesies offered to a guest. But this woman, she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And she hasn't stopped kissing my feet from the time I came in. And she's anointed my feet with the perfume. And he said, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, that's where it would appear that Jesus is talking about a past action. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He perhaps has already met her. She knew who he was. She came in gratitude. For, he said, she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. There are people who are moral, good people. You talk to them about Jesus and they will talk to you about honesty and integrity and public service and being a good citizen in the community. And they are moral. They don't cheat. They don't steal. In fact, by their estimation, they they live a pretty good life. And oftentimes do not have a real sense of spiritual need. They're quite spiritually smug and complacent. These, I think, are some of the hardest people to reach. You know where the easiest place for evangelism is in all the world? The prisons. I mean, evangelism is just a snap there. These fellows all recognize their need. They're looking for help. And when they are truly converted, they become real dynamos because they love much. They realize they've been forgiven much. So, little love, much love. And we all fall in one category or the other or somewhere in between. Where would you rate yourself? Much love, great love for the Lord, deeply passionate towards Him? Or is there just a little love? Or are you in between? On a scale of one to ten, where would you rate your love? Five, six? You realize where that is? Middle ground, that's called lukewarm. Neither hot, neither cold. The Lord wants you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
And those that are forgiven much find it easy to love him much. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a rank sinner to love much. And that you should go out and just really, you know, drink of the dregs of sin in order that he might forgive you and you can then love him a lot. It's just our attitude towards him. The thing is, we all of us are sinners. Whether we owe 5,000 or 50,000, we are all sinners. It doesn't make any difference if you're a good sinner or a bad sinner, you're a sinner. If you're a cultured sinner or an uncultured sinner, you're still a sinner. And there's a lot of cultured sin around. None of us can atone for our sin. We are all spiritually bankrupt. Without his forgiveness, we've all sinned enough to condemn ourselves to an eternal destiny apart from God. The beautiful thing is he offers forgiveness. And once we've received that forgiveness, oh, the joy, the blessing, the happiness, as David expressed it, Oh, how blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. So Jesus said she was forgiven and thus she loved much. And then he said to her, thy sins are forgiven. That created a stir to those that were there at the meal. They began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? Now, this isn't the first time this happened, you know. As he was teaching in Capernaum, and remember the story of the man who was palsied and his friends brought him and they couldn't get in, so they let him down through the roof. And the first thing Jesus said to him, thy sins were forgiven, and it created the uproar. Who, you know, who is he to forgive? Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus said, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take your bed and walk, but that you might know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man with the palsy, rise, take your bed and walk. Thy sins are forgiven. What beautiful words when spoken to us by the Lord. Who can forgive sins but God? That was a correct evaluation. Only God can forgive sin, for sin is against God. David, when he prayed for forgiveness, said, Against thee and thee only have I son, sinned and done this great iniquity in thy sight. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Calling unto God for forgiveness because only God can forgive. But Jesus was proving that he was God. And so now again, he says, Thy sins are forgiven. And then he said to the woman, Have Thy faith hath saved thee. That's always true. By grace are we saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And so thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. You know, one of the characteristics of sin is that it leaves your mind in a constant turmoil. When you are living in sin, there is that consciousness of sin that creates just a unrest in your soul. 
You know you're doing wrong. You know you shouldn't be doing it. And as you're doing it, you're miserable because you know you shouldn't be. And yet the flesh is drawing you to it, and so you find yourself being torn, torn by the lust of the flesh and torn by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you find yourself in this miserable state of just being ripped to pieces. But once you've forsaken the sin and found forgiveness, what peace there is. What glorious peace. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then he added, you shall find rest for your soul. And that's the glorious consequence of being forgiven your sins is that glorious rest and peace. Go in peace. Tonight, if you're struggling with sin, if you're in a battle and you know that misery of being torn by the desires of your flesh and by the tug of the Spirit, you can go in peace tonight. You can resolve that whole issue. You can surrender that to Jesus Christ tonight and he will forgive. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you tonight. And you can go in peace. Even right now where you're sitting, you can just ask the Lord to help you, to take away the sin. Right now you can ask for his strength and power over that sin that's tearing you up and ripping you up. And you can find peace and rest in Jesus. Luke chapter 8, as we continue our journey through the scriptures. And it came to pass afterward. Now that isn't really quite a place to start, is it? After what? Uh, in the last part of the seventh chapter, we find Jesus uh, eating with the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, who was very ungracious, uh, did not offer to Jesus the common courtesies of a host. And uh, after that, he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. The message of Jesus was the coming kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And as we look at the kingdom of man, the governments of man, and as we see how that man has proved himself incapable of governing over his fellow man, it makes us long for the kingdom of God. At this point, notice he is going into every city and village preaching and showing, not just preaching, but also showing. How did he show it? By the healing of the infirmed and the sick, by the raising of the dead. You see, when the kingdom of God is established, there will be no sickness. There will be no physical infirmities. 
no blindness, lameness. As Isaiah describes it in chapter 35, how the blind will see and the lame will leap like the deer and the mute will be singing praises to the Lord. And so Jesus was healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, and thus showing them the things of the kingdom of God, the restoration of man to God's divine and original intent before sin marred the plan and the purposes of God. Notice that Jesus is not now going into the synagogues. In the earlier scriptures, we were reading how that he would go into the synagogues and would teach. But the synagogues are no longer open to him. Uh, he is in now real combat with the religious leaders. And so now out in the highways, the byways, the public places, Jesus is teaching and showing the people the things of God as he begins his third year of his earthly ministry. The twelve, it says, were with him, but also there were certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. There was Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils, or of whom went seven devils. Mary from Magdala, a little city along the Sea of Galilee, midway between Tiberias and Capernaum, a woman whose life, no doubt, was totally miserable, because of the power and the control of these demons over her, Jesus set her free, and as the result, she committed herself fully, completely to Jesus. It's as though I owe my very life to you. Now, this is in reality true of each of us, not that we were delivered of seven devils, but we were delivered from the power of sin, and we were lost and undone in sin, and without the salvation brought to us by Jesus Christ, we would all be lost, and so we all of us owe our lives to him. But hers was such a dramatic deliverance that she just felt that commitment and did commit her life to him. She was standing by the cross when he was crucified. And she was one of the first to the tomb and the first to see the risen Lord and the first who was commissioned by the Lord to go and tell the story of the resurrection. Mary of Magdala. There was also Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Now, Chusa was the Herod steward, that is, he was the man who was in charge of Herod's financial affairs. He had an extremely important position in Herod's court. Look at the contrasting people that Jesus brings together. 
a woman whose husband is in Herod's court, along with Mary from Magdala, whose life was just a total miserable mess before she met Jesus, and yet Jesus brings such opposites together. In the days when our area had been invaded by the hippies and we were the little country church on the edge of town, that song that was written by Chuck Gerard concerning the church is, uh, I'm trying to think, would it be illustrative or illustrative? It would be illustrative of, of this particular uh, thing in that he wrote that line, long hair, short hair, some coats and ties. People finally coming around. What a mixture, what an odd mixture that God put together. Uh, during that time, we had a very uh, famous proctologist from Pasadena area who couldn't stand hippies. Uh, but uh, his grand his daughter and son-in-law had become sort of involved, so he came down reluctantly to go to church and but didn't want to mix too much with these long-haired, dirty-jeaned kids, you know. And so he came in, and of course the church was just packed to the gunnels. And so when we opened the word, he didn't bring his Bible with him, but this dirty hippie next to him. <laughs> shared the Bible, and it just broke his heart. He thought, oh my, you know, how wrong I've been. But God brought together an interesting blend of people, contrasting God. All, you know, Jesus has broken down the walls that separate man. As Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, he is our peace who has broken down every wall. And there was no wall that was higher or uh, more impenetrable than the wall between the Jew and the Gentile. But Paul there in Ephesians speaks of how he broke down even the wall between Jew and Gentile, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so he brings together opposites. He brings together a, a interesting blend of people. Now these women that were with Jesus ministered to him of their substance. It was a common thing to help support a rabbi. It was considered to be a very honorable thing. Now, these women went... You see, we think of the Bible stories in the light of our culture. You know, we think almost that Jesus traveled in a Greyhound bus with his disciples or took a jet, you know, to Jerusalem. Uh, but we don't think of the logistics of the whole thing where they were walking everywhere. And we think of each town having its Motel 6 and uh, where you just go and rent a room and, and all, but it just didn't happen that way in those days. And as they traveled, uh, there weren't just a lot of restaurants where you could go in and eat. And Notice, there isn't just the 12 apostles, but there were many disciples who were following Jesus 
of whom 12 were named to be apostles. But you remember that when Jesus rose from the dead and had ascended into heaven and the disciples had gathered in Jerusalem and they were talking about the necessity of choosing one to replace Judas Iscariot, how that they said, we need someone who has accompanied with us from the beginning, who can bear witness of the ministry of Jesus and of his resurrection. We need to choose one of these to become a part of the twelve. So there were many who had accompanied with Jesus during his earthly sojourn, and thus there were meals to be prepared, there was the sowing of robes to be done. There were the washing of the clothes and things of this nature. And so with those that followed Jesus were a group of women also who were very devoted and committed to Jesus and committed to taking care of, of the meal preparation and uh, the buying of the food, the preparing of the food and things of this nature. And so here we have three of the women named for us uh, who were a part of that company whose lives have been impacted by Jesus. They had more or less received a new lease on life from him because of his healing, either of themselves or of a close relation, perhaps. And so they ministered unto him of their substance, that is, they took care of those common, ordinary things. And so when many people were gathered together and come to him out of every city, he spoke to them by a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down. The fowls of the air devoured it. Some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. This is a common cry of Jesus oftentimes when he would uh, make a very important pertinent statement, he would then declare, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. It's an emphasis upon what's been said. And thus, uh, throughout the uh, messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, as Jesus is addressing the churches, he oft repeats this phrase, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so, here we have the four types of, of soil or the types of individuals, the hearts of individuals upon which the word of God falls or descends as seed that is sown. The hardened ground of the pathway. Some of the seed as it is sown is blown onto the pathway. The ground is hard because it's been trodden down by people. And there, as the seed lies on the pathway, people come and walk over it, and the birds then come and they eat the seed. It never penetrates. 
And there are some people that the word of God never penetrates their hearts at all. They, they have a total disinterest in, in the word of God and, and their hearts are so hardened that they just don't listen and it, and it doesn't penetrate. But then there is that stony ground and as I said this morning, he's not referring to just rocky soil, which Israel has plenty of rocky soil, but the rocky soil is tilled and planted and does grow great crops because the soil is fertile. But the hillsides are barren of dirt. So most of the dirt is in the valleys. The hillsides have been denuded. And there are large flat stones, but the flat stones have these little crevices that have been created and usually there are puddles of water in them in the wintertime, in the rain and uh, little potholes kind of on the hillside. And the dirt in them is one inch to six inches deep. But it's, it's over this rock. It's just all rocky, flat, rocky area with these little uh, holes in it that the, the dust has blown in and fills up the holes. And the seeds, of course, blow. And, and in the springtime, even... Uh, now these places are beginning to green out and little wildflowers are beginning to pop up. But they are the first places where seed germinates in uh, the wintertime. But it isn't long-lasting because there is no depth of earth. Uh, the plant soon withers and dies as the moisture goes and as they enter into the spring season where they don't get as much rain, quickly it dies and it never develops very high. The uh, flowers that grow in these little chuck holes are always very stunted in their growth. Uh, the anemones are usually only about six inches high in these areas because uh, they just don't have any depth of earth. And some fell there in that stony ground in these little potholes and all where the soil was very thin. But they can never come to maturity. They can never grow to the place of, of, of seeding even because of the shallowness of the earth and the lack of moisture as soon as it turns warm. And then there is that which fell among the weeds, among the thorns. And you know as well as I know, if you had anything to do with gardening at all, weeds seem to grow so much easier than, than your plants. Grow faster. And, and the thing is, though, we have to weed our gardens because the weeds draw the nutrients out of the soil. And, of course, there are some noxious weeds like morning glories that uh, will entwine themselves around the plants and actually choke out a plant and the life of a plant. And so there is some of the seed that fell among the thorns, the weeds, and the weeds grew up with it and choked it out and it never came to the place of actually bearing fruit. And then there was that good soil and it brought forth a hundredfold. 
Now, I think of evangelism today and how so often we hear Billy Graham criticized because uh, of the fact that so many people go forward in the campaigns, but then you hear the criticism, where are those people? We don't see them in our churches. You know, he came to Orange County and 10,000 people went forward, but where are those people, you know? And uh, what we don't take into consideration is that Jesus said that it's not going to all bear fruit. That, that there will be some that will immediately, you know, take hold and get excited, but then they lack depth and they fall away. And uh, then there are some that it grows up with the thorns and the thorns choke it out. And uh, <laughs> Jesus you know, giving the four kinds of soil, if you get one in four, well, praise the Lord. At least you've got, you know, and rather than being able to look and say, yes, there are those, praise God for those that are going on and bearing fruit. Uh, we seem to want to criticize because uh, so many of them don't continue on in the faith. But rather than being negative and, and emphasizing those that don't, it's better to just praise the Lord for those that are going on, the fact that they have received the Word of God and are growing and developing and bringing forth fruit. And so we read that the disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, and he begins to explain the parable. I think that there has come confusion as though Jesus is deliberately trying to hide the truth from people. As he explains his use of parables, a cursory examination, it would appear that he's trying to hide the truth. But that is the very opposite purpose of a parable. The purpose of a parable is to illustrate a truth, allowing you to see the truth by illustration. And in preaching, we learn the value of illustrations. And <laughs> share with you some of our secrets. When we see people beginning to nod off, we're losing attention. <laughs> then we'll tell a story because it perks people up. We like stories. Once upon a time, many years ago, you know, and, and, it, and it perks people up and they start to listen. And the truth then is brought to them in a subtle way. And oftentimes the truth is not grasped until the punchline of the story comes in. And many of the times when Jesus used parables, the Pharisees realized, ooh, 
ooh, that one hit us. I mean, you know, they, they, when the application came, they could see that it was applicable to their situation. So parables are not intended to hide the truth, but to illustrate the truth so that a person will hear. He may not understand fully, but it's an illustration and, a, and something to draw his attention so that he'll continue to listen. Uh, to the disciples, Jesus said, I can just talk to you straight. You understand the things of the kingdom. I can share with you. But to those that are without, I've got to use the stories. I've got to use the parables in order to keep them listening so that they can get the truth and hear the truth. Though some people deliberately close their ears and close their eyes and don't want the truth. Yet they get it anyhow through the parable because they get interested in the story. I cannot believe that the Lord is deliberately hiding truth from people. That's not his purpose. His purpose is that the truth be known. So as he then explains the parable to the disciples, the seed is the word of God. Now, there is... In the law of biblical interpretation, what they call expositional constancy. They use big words. They say, you know, hermeneutics, that's the law of scriptural interpretation. You've got to have a big word for it so it sounds intelligent. And uh, <laughs> then expositional uh, constancy. Uh, expositional constancy just means that when a symbol or object is used to represent something else, every time that symbol or object is used in uh, a symbolic form, it always represents the same thing. In other words, uh, if you are using the birds to represent something that is evil, as in uh, this parable, the birds come and pluck up the seed. Then in parables where you have birds mentioned, uh, in an in, in allegorical form, the birds are always bad. You don't find the birds being good in some of the stories and bad in others. There's a constancy. So that if in this parable the seed is the word of God, wherever in a parable the seed is is spoken of, it will be always a reference to the Word of God, the expositional constancy. So the seed is the Word of God. And those by the wayside are they that hear, and then cometh the devil, the birds, and taketh away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, <laughs> There is another parable of a mustard seed uh, that was planted, one of the smallest of all seeds, but this particular mustard seed grew up into a tree and the birds of the air came and lodged in it. 
And, and Jesus is speaking in, in a, period, in a uh, series of three parables concerning the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. And uh, like the woman who took the leaven and hid it in three loaves, and, and the same uh, illustration on through. But there are those who say, well, you see, the church is going to start off very small, like a mustard seed, but it's going to grow until it covers the whole earth, and then the birds are going to come and lodge in it. You know, and, and, and people will find a shelter under it and so forth, and it's that glorious... Uh, church expanding in the kingdom of God so that we, the church, are going to expand until we control the world and we bring in the kingdom of God. And that's one interpretation of that. <laughs> but if, if there is expositional constancy, the fact that you have birds lodging in the tree shows that the church is going to become corrupted, infiltrated by the enemy. Now, what does history show us as far as fact is concerned? The church has become infiltrated by the enemy. So uh, here the seed is the word of God. It's planted in the various soils, and that which fell by the wayside, hardened hearts, Satan comes and plucks the word before it even has a chance to penetrate. They that are on the rock, they that hear the word of God with joy. They spring up quickly, but they have no root. And in the time of temptation, time of trial, because they have no root, uh, they, they fall away, they, they turn away. Now, I'm only going to seek to stimulate you to think. I'm not making any declaration one way or another. I'm only asking questions to provoke you to thinking. Obviously, in this first aspect of the parable, the seed that fell on the wayside, there was never any life that came forth. It never germinated. There wasn't new life at all. Jesus said, lest they believe and be saved. Obviously, they were never saved. But how about the seed that fell on the stony ground? And there was apparent life but stunted and died quickly were they saved I only ask the questions I don't answer them <laughs> and then there is that which fell among the thorns I'm not going to answer it I don't know. because I don't know there is that which fell among the thorns and they are they which who, when they heard, they go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to perfection or maturity. Those who remain in a stunted spiritual state, those who never develop beyond infancy, 
Those who after years in the church are still babes in Christ. Those who have been around long enough that they ought to be able to teach the Word of God, but they still need to be taught. And rather than being able to receive and grow by the meat of the Word, still require milk. Those that are spoken of by Paul when he wrote to the Corinth church, and those that are spoken of in the book of Hebrews, who have never developed matured in their spiritual walk, but because of the cares of this life and because of their desire for riches and their pursuit of pleasure, they've never developed to the point of bearing fruit. But that which fell on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart Having heard the word, they keep it. And they bring forth fruit with patience. And so the keeping of the word of God is, is the thing that's being emphasized here. Those that hear it and keep it. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And thus it's important that we examine ourselves at this point and ask what kind of soil is my heart? Is it good soil? Am I keeping, am I bringing forth fruit? Is the fruit of the Spirit evidenced and manifested in my life? Am I loving, filled with joy and peace? Am I patient and long-suffering? Am I gentle, good, kind, faithful? Do these characteristics mark my life? Am I keeping the commandment of the Lord to love one another? And only you can answer that question because only, well, I don't know that you even know yourself, but allow the Holy Spirit to show you what is truth. And then Jesus said, No man, when he's lighted a candle, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. But he sets it on a candlestick that they which enter in may see the light. In other words, there's one purpose of a candle, and that's to give light. You don't cover it. You don't hide it. And, and, there's, and you are the light of the world, and the purpose is to give light to those that come into the house. And, and thus... The light isn't to be covered. It's, in, it's inconsistent. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, and neither anything hid that shall not be made known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. Take heed. Jesus cried out, you remember, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now he's saying, be careful how you hear. For whomsoever hath to him shall be given, and whomsoever hath not from him shall be taken even that which he seems to have. So then came to him his mother and his brothers, and they could not get into the house where he was teaching because of the crowd of people. 
And it was told him by certain ones that were there, which said, your mother and your brothers stand without desiring to see you. Now, from the other Gospels, we know that Mary came down with Jesus' brothers to rescue him from this uh, demands of the crowd. We are told in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus didn't even have time to eat. The people were pressing on him and coming, wanting to be touched or wanting to touch him. And, and there, were, there were such demanding people that uh, he really didn't have any time. And they thought that he was going to lose his mind. That he, would, that, that he would be beside himself. It was a term they used for a person uh, having lost his mind. Uh, when you're beside yourself, you're talking to yourself. You know, you're uh, conversing with yourself. And, and, it's, uh, and so they thought that, you know, he was, he was getting to that state of, of going to be worn out. No time to sleep, no time to eat. The pressures of the people were so great. And so actually, theirs was a mission of mercy. It was a mission of love. She is seeing her son being overtaxed, and she's worried about him. And so she's actually coming to attempt to rescue him with his brothers. And so when they brought in word to him, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. He answered and said unto them, My mother and my brothers are those which hear the word of God and do it. You see, again, the emphasis is not just hearing. Take heed how you hear. Now, how should you hear? You should hear with a responsive heart and do it. Uh, the good soil, they are the ones that heard the word of God and kept it. The ones who are not just hearing but the ones who are doing and keeping the word of God. And so it is, it is important that we are here hearing the word, but what is more important is that we go out and put it into practice, because if we don't put it into practice, then it doesn't have value. If it isn't practical, if it can't be applied, if it can't be worked out in our life, then it is not of value to us. So take heed how you hear that we hear with an open, honest heart, ready to put into practice the things that the Spirit teaches us out of the Word. And those, he said, are my, those are the family. Those are the real family. My family are those that hear the Word and do it. They are, they are the real family. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him, and they awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? Now, these storms are quite common on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually surrounded by mountains. It is 600 feet below sea level. 
There are canyons that have been carved out by uh, water erosion through the years. And uh, when you get weather changes, uh, the uh, Sea of Galilee being 600 feet below sea level, you have a situation more or less like you have in Palm Springs, Indio, uh, where it gets very warm. But you have not far away the coastal area uh, of uh, the Mediterranean. And so you oftentimes get these uh, weather changes and violent winds, like in Banning, the Banning Pass. Uh, it's usually windy there. And if you've traveled that area very much, you've probably had your car sandblasted on an occasion or two because the wind always seems to be howling through that pass. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus teaching in parables. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, Simply order Luke 7 through 8 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for the love that Jesus has for sinning man. And Lord, we thank you that as sinners, we can touch you and you don't recoil. Lord, as we reach out, that your hand is there to hold us and to help us. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us tonight. For those, Lord, that are in the struggle against the flesh, may they begin to experience even this night your help, your strength, your victory. Give them power to overcome evil. In Jesus' name, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Want to know how to gain wisdom from God? Then don't miss out on Wisdom for Today by Pastor Chuck Smith. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson. Growing up, I had the wonderful privilege of spending every morning with my dad. And every morning, he would impart to me just a little bit of God's wisdom. Now, you can have that same opportunity if you pick up my father's devotional, Wisdom for Today. 
It's a 365-day trip through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And each day ends with a special prayer incorporating what you learn into your heart. That's wisdom for today. I pray that you have a wonderful journey with my Father. The gift of wisdom is priceless. Be sure to order Wisdom for Today by Pastor Chuck Smith as a gift for yourself or for a friend. Call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673. That's 1-800-272-9673. Or to read a sample, visit thewordfortoday.org.